So it's Gary again with episode three of the Retro Football Network podcast. That's right, episode three. I didn't even know if I'd make it to episode one, to be honest, but we're here at episode three. I hope you enjoyed the first two. Guest number one was Ellis James, and the last time out it was Ian Danter. If you've not listened to them, please go back, have a look at the list. You'll find them, download them, give them a listen, and it helps me out no end if you do. Now, we've got another guest today, and for many of you, who will be very familiar through his TV work. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, he was the face of the match on ITV, covering the old First Division. So, my guest today, a huge welcome to Elton Wellsby. Okay, so, episode three, and big welcome to Elton Wellsby. Elton, thanks a lot for being here. How are you today? It's my pleasure, Gary. I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, it's good to, to see you here with us today. Someone with lots of memories to share, no doubt. So let's go back to when you were first getting into football as a child. I know you support Everton. You're very vocal about yeah. that. How did you get into supporting Everton? Well, I'll start with um, how I gained my love for football. I was um, seven, um, and my dad, he, he was in the bank, the Nat West, and he was chief clerk in the Macclesfield branch. So we, we, we were in Macclesfield before we um, went to Liverpool. And we used to go and watch Macclesfield at the Moss Rose in what was then the Cheshire League. And oh. I, I loved it. I used to love going to watch them. And because of my dad's contacts, there was one, this is before the days of substitutes, <clears throat> but it was a special occasion, and I've, I've forgotten what it was, and kids walked out um, hand in hand with the Macclesfield players, and I was holding hands with Neil Franklin. Now, you, you probably don't, you, you definitely look too young to, to remember Neil Franklin. <laughs> I don't remember. <clears throat> he was... He was arguably the best centre-half England have ever had. Um, but because of the money, the law of the, uh, whatever it is, it's like the expression of law of the, the lira. But actually, he went to Bogota. Um, to oh, play. right. Okay, yeah. That was him. He was the first, he was the first um, English player to, to go abroad. But the FA, as they, in those days, they took a very dim view of it. Um, and when he came, he didn't really settle. I think he was there probably for less than a year, but he wasn't allowed to play back in England. He was banned from playing. That was the England, end of his England career. Um, and he, I say he ended up, he played one season for, for Macclesfield Town. And I thought it was, oh, a, okay. you know, but so, I only usually tell this story to, to older people that, you know, I held hands as a seven-year-old with Neil Franklin. As but I say, there was Charlie Mitten as well. There were some other players who followed that path. They went to Bogota as well. After him, I think there were some yeah, others as well. Neil was, I, I, well, I don't keep track of football in Bogota, but um, <laughs> I, I didn't know. When I was watching Neil Franklin play for it, I didn't know the history of no, that. Of only later that, that I found out the history that, you know, the, the guy I was holding hands with was a legend. Yeah. 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 So at um, that point, then, so you, in, you got into football that way. 
that way. And then um, my father, my father um, was promoted to be manager of the NatWest Bank in Fairfield in Liverpool. So we moved there. Um, and he knew I was going to miss watching Mac on a, on a Saturday afternoon um, or, or evening games. And so he, he spoke to somebody um, about tickets for, for Everton. And it, it was actually a Liverpool director who, who got us the tickets for the Bullens Road stand. Uh, and it was April 1962. Okay. And Everton beat Cardiff 8-3. That's a good and game so, to start with. <laughs> so I was hooked. That was me, hook, line, and sinker, and Evertonian. Um, and my hero, he scored on that day, but he, he ran the game, was Alex Young, known as the oh, Golden yeah. Vision. And he was just, wow, you know? Uh, he was something else. Um, but just to preface that, the week before, because we used to just go to Macclesfield, you just turn up, pay the turnstiles and go in, no problem. So the week before, we turned up at Anfield, me and my dad, we turned up at Anfield expecting just, you know, and it was jam-packed, we couldn't get in. Yeah. So I was, I'd be what, I'd be nine or ten. Um, you know, so I was in tears kind of thing. You know, 11, sorry. You know, I was in, as you did, a kid, emotional, got all this way to see Liverpool play. I think it was Blackpool, and we couldn't get in. So It wasn't next, your destiny then. So the next week, with it being an Everton home game, my dad made absolutely sure that we would go and get in. Yeah. And so he, he went to a fellow called Sidney Moss, who was a Liverpool director, a garage owner, who did business with the bank. Uh, and he said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll get, get those for you. And we got two tickets for the Bullens Road end. And as I say, um, Everton beat Cardiff 8-3. <laughs> I couldn't have picked a, a better match. And that was me. I've, I've been an Evertonian ever since. And, of course, then just after that, they, they won the FA Cup, didn't they, in that famous match? Well, no, well, and... well, well no, hang on. 12 months after my Goodison debut as a fan, Everton won the title. 1963. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, 1963, they won the title. Um, beating Fulham 4-1 at the time. Rodney Marsh was playing for Fulham as a, a sort of 16 or 17-year-old. And he were, you able, were you able to see many matches that season? Yeah, oh God, yeah. Yeah, we, we went uh, we went to, to most most games, <clears throat> you know, because I say we, we had a, my dad had a very, very good contact, so we could get to, we didn't know anyone at Everton, but, it, but he knew this uh, director of Liverpool, Sidney Moss, and of course, he, you know, the, it was quite easy for him to sort of ring up a counterpart at Everton and say, can you send us two tickets for friends of mine for your game whenever. Perfect. But the first one was, was I say, April 62. Perfect. And did you, did you manage to get to Wembley in 66? Were you able yes. to go to the Sheffield Wednesday final? Yes, yes. I went with a cousin. My cousin took me. Um, I was 15, 
Yeah. Um, but, you know, a little, I'm, well, I'm still a little, you know, a small potato. My dad wouldn't let me go on my own and he couldn't yeah. go for whatever reason. Um, but I went with my cousin Bill. Uh, right, okay. We went there. And of course, anyone who, who knows the history of the 66 Cup final uh, will tell you things didn't look too good at one point. No, they didn't, did they? No. Shortly into the second half, we, we went two down. Um, and it, it, it was kind of, oh, cracky, you know, shall we? If we even contemplated leaving, because there's no way we we're going to win 2 0 down sort of 10 minutes into the second half. But it was a, an event. It was Wembley. It was great to be there. Absolute jam packed atmosphere, terrific. So we stayed, and boy, am I glad we did. Because uh, Mike Trebleco, who um, pl played instead of Fred Pickering, which was very controversial, very controversial move by the manager, Harry Catrick, to not play Fred Pickering, but to play Mike Trebilco. Um, and the only thing he ever did as an Evertonian was score the first two goals to make it two all in that cup final. So, you know, Harry's decision was fully justified. Yeah. And of course, what went I can see it now. Colin Harvey, very young at the time, passed the ball forward. Jerry Young, the, the centre-half of Sheffield Wednesday, went to trap it, and it went under his foot. And Derek Shirley Temple ran onto it, bump, and drove it low and hard past Ron Springett in the Sheffield Wednesday goal. And we went absolutely potty at our end. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Like he said he thought it was over. And, yeah, and yeah. Like we night. thought it was all over, but not. Uh, then when Shirley scored, um, it was all over. It really, yeah. you know, the Sheffield Wednesday. I can remember this very clearly. Their heads, they'd lost any confidence whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I forget precisely how many minutes left that can't have been many when he got the winner. Uh, yeah. But Everton really could have scored two or three more in, in the remaining time because yeah. Sheffield Wednesday were just crestfallen. And that is also as well, you talked about young Colin Harvey, of course, such a great team coming through that in 1970 were league champions again as well. Well, you see, With also Ball what and... happened in 1966 was uh, when we, we, we won the Cup, which was far more important in my mind than, than England winning the World Cup, which they did afterwards. And then within a week, we'd signed Alan Ball, who was man of the match in the World Cup final. And I'm not just saying this because he became an Evertonian shortly afterwards. Alan Ball was man of the match in, in the, the 1966 World Cup final by a country mile. I mean, yeah. Jeff Hurst got a hat trick. Man of the match, off. Oh, 90% Alan Ball. Yeah. Absolutely. Unbelievable, and it was. I've a, heard that before too. But I think my dad said the same. I think. Oh, it was unbelievable because he had his socks rolled down. Um, it was a quagmire of a pitch, and he just ran and ran and ran for ninety minutes, and then for a further thirty minutes, he was out of this. Um, 
I've watched this at a friend's house uh, in Nutford in Cheshire. Um, and I, I was just mesmerized by this little fella um, who subsequently became a good friend of mine. But then I was absolutely made up that he signed for Everton. Yeah. £110,000 we paid for him. What, 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 what did they offer for Mbappé, the, the team in Saudi? Was it £259 million? <laughs> we, got, we got Alan Ball for £110,000. Yeah. Um, and of course, then we got Howard. Yeah. Uh, Colin was there anyway. So all of a sudden, the Holy Trinity was born. Uh, the best midfield I've ever seen. And I think that's where um, Alf Ramsey made a mistake in 1970 in the 1970 World Cup, because these three were telepathic. The, the, yeah. it, it was, they were unbelievable. Um, and of course, they, they, they um, were the main reason, I suppose, that Everton won the title in 1970. Uh, but I, I think, I think uh, Alf obviously had loyalty to certain players because of 66. Uh, <laughs> Paulie played the midfield should have just been Kendall Ball and Harvey. Uh, but he didn't. And then, and, uh, obviously, we went out, but we yep. sort of went out. It was like the old Dunkirk spirit. We went out brilliantly, uh, losing <laughs> to Brazil. The game, which also included what is regarded as the greatest save of all time. Yeah, the Banks one. Banks, the Banks save from Pele's downward header. Yeah, which is just incredible. I mean, you see it. Oh, how did he do that? And I, I became in, in much later on great, great friends with with Jack Carlton. Of course, that's who you were. Yeah. And he he says that he, he looked down at Bank and said, "Why didn't you fucking hold it?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, because when you think you can see what I'm doing, he was full out stretched out the ball back Pele's header was perfect yeah into the deck and Banksy as it bounced he got his hand at full stretch underneath it and flicked it over the bar yeah big jack yeah why didn't you put why didn't you fucking get, uh, keep hold of it <laughs> <laughs> now you mentioned going to the 1970s there and that's when you started your media career. How did you get into media? Because you started, first of all, well, on radio. How did that happen? I, I was I was a hospital porter, believe it or not. I, I'll make this very brief. Um, I went into insurance and hated it. I did a year in insurance. And then I just had to get out. I just loathed it. And I went to, to be um, a hospital porter at Broad Green Hospital in Liverpool and loved it. But it wasn't a vocation. Yeah. Um, so I was really getting getting to realize after sort of 11 months or so of doing this job, doing nights as well as days and all, all sorts of shit, that I really needed to, to find something. Uh, and I was going down the corridor at Broad Green one day, and you know, where they sell the grapes and all that sort of stuff, and yeah. also newspapers. And there was this, this newspaper on that I'd never heard of called the Liverpool Weekly News. Um, so I I bought it, it was probably Tuppence at the time, and they had, <clears throat> in, in the, in the centre of it, it was a, a pullout 
um, sport only, uh, covering Liverpool, Everton, uh, Notramere, uh, South Liverpool in the Northern Premier League. That was the club um, that produced John Aldridge and Jimmy Case. Yeah. Uh, and then the result of all the hours of football in Liverpool. <laughs> and at the time, I don't know whether it's the case now, but at the time, the Liverpool and District Sunday League was the biggest league anywhere, well, let's say in Europe, certainly in Europe, could be the world. The Liverpool and District Sunday League was, was absolutely unbelievable. There were about 20 divisions. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So I thought, hey, I, I fancy this. Just, you know, I've always been good at English, always been good at putting, putting words together, etc. So I wrote off to the... Um, the managing editor based in Witness. There were three papers, Liverpool Weekly News, Runcorn Weekly News, and the Witness Weekly News. And the headquarters was Witness. So I wrote to this kind of fellow called Ron Carrington, uh, fearsome bloke. Um, so I wrote to him. Anyway, I got a, an interview about a week later. <clears throat> well, this, is, you know, this is progress, at least. And I tell you what, it was almost like when I got home, I got a phone call saying, you've got the job, when can you start? Wow, just like that? Yeah, I, it, was, it was incredible. I must have made a good impression on the guy. Of course, yeah. And he wasn't a fool. I mean, he, he wasn't a fool. Um, so that, that was really good. You know, I, um, you know, and I started there. I mean, I started doing, you know, working in witness, uh, doing, you know, the Rose Queens and all that, the obituaries. Oh, God. Didn't, didn't particularly enjoy that. But within, within, oh, gosh, within two months of joining the weekly news, um, Ken Rogers, who was the sports editor of the Liverpool paper, moved to the Liverpool Echo. And they all know what I wanted to do with sport. Yeah, of course. And I'd done, I'd done, I'd done some pieces with Witness Rugby League Club and uh, Runcon Football Club, the Linnets. Um, and they all knew that football's what I want to do. And I literally, after two months of being a rookie, a, a newbie, I was in as sports editor of the Liverpool Weekly News, and that's that's really when it took off. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, and so from there, is that how you then moved to radio? Yes. Um, and that, that's, that's an interesting story because um, <clears throat> I was doing um, the occasional work for Radio Merseyside. I reading out football results, the racing results, just to sort of train my voice as much as anything. And I was in the office one day and Eddie Hemmings, you must have heard of Eddie Hammond. Yeah, not the cricketer, the rugby, the rugby one. Oh, the rugby league presenter. Yeah, I remember, remember him, yeah. How retired Eddie. Eddie was at Radio Merseyside, and he was on the phone to a fellow called David Maker at Radio City to say that he decided to stay at the BBC and he wasn't moving to Radio City. Mm. And I heard this. So I literally laid down. There's a phone, you remember phone boxes? <laughs> 
there was a phone box outside Radio Merseyside, and I, I uh, got on the uh, got on the phone and um, rang this fellow David Maker at Radio City uh, and said, you know, I've been doing a bit at Radio Merseyside. I've had four years' experience in journalism at the the Weekly News. Um, any chance of you know come along and, and consider me for a position at the new station. So he said, yeah, because he's panicking. They didn't have a sports yeah. guy. And it was, we're talking about a week to going on air. October the 21st, 1974, that was when Radio City first broadcast. And so they were panicking. They had no one to do the sport. So he said, yeah, yeah, come down. When, you know, when can you make it? I said, well, I can come anytime. He said, I'll see you in 10 minutes because he wasn't far. No. Um, radio early side, Stanley Street in, in Liverpool. And I went in, we had a chat, and he said, Great, can you start now? Now? <laughs> I, I said, I think so. Yeah. Because all I had to do was resign. Well, not resign. I didn't have a contract or anything at Royal Green. I was still a porter, despite doing the old. Oh, okay. Side. I was still a, still a hospital porter. Um, I thought, well, I can't give up this chance. And so I, 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 I literally got escorted around Radio City, which was still being built, basically, mm. uh, um, and getting to learn, you know, the technology of recording voice pieces, et cetera, et cetera. I, but I had a week to, to, to learn that, which is impossible. You can't do it in a week. Um, so on October the 21st, 1974, you know, I did my first like sports bulletin, um, you know, as part of the news. Okay. Shit myself. Oh, God. <laughs> was well, it, must have been, yeah, it must have been quite daunting. You had to, you had to work the, the faders well, you know, the, the put your mic up. And then if you were queuing in a, a clip of an interview with whoever, then you had to take your mic. So it had to, and I, I suffered from technophobia. Uh, I really, really hopeless, you know. Um, <clears throat> but I had to work the, my, the, the equipment myself. God. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we got through it. And then um, Terry Smith, who, who later in life, uh, became a director of Liverpool. Um, he said, "Right, well, I've, I've done a deal with Peter Robinson, secretary of Liverpool Football Company. Yeah. Ready for it. So we we can commentate can all their games. Um, home games. If it was a sellout, we could commentate on the home games, but certainly all the away games. Now, <laughs> this is where." You know, my my uh, my love for Everton had to be concealed. Of course. <laughs> because I went everywhere with Liverpool. I hardly did an Everton game. I did a, I did a few. But compared to Liverpool, I, I, you know, I, I, I can hardly remember doing an Everton game. Uh, I remember one, Everton against Wolves. Gordon Lee was manager. I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, but in the main, I, I was home and away with, with, with Liverpool. And, and of course, that was the time when they were sweeping 
old, oh, old Bob Paisley, who, who yeah. became. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a football expert. I could be a coach or whatever. But whatever I've learned about football, um, which is different nowadays than it was back then, of course. I learned from Bob Paisley. He became a friend, a mentor. Um, I used to, <clears throat> for the away games, um, I used to go on the coach, on, on the players' coach. Yeah. We, we, unheard of. I'm try that today. Oh, you'd have no chance. But no. because Bob and I got on so well, you know, the first time it happened, I've forgotten where it, exactly where this was. It might have been Ipswich. And he said, um, how are you getting back? And I said, oh, I've got the station and get a train, you know. He said, no, 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 come with us. So I went back and I always sat right at the right behind the driver in the front because the players yeah. would be in the back always with crates of booze. And it was their wind down time, talk about the game, win, lose or draw. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't, even though I knew all the players, I, I thought that was their time. That was, you know, that was their space. Yeah. So I used to sit right behind the driver in the front and this became a tradition. And then after he'd um, had a chat with Joe Fagan, Ronnie Moran, uh, Roy Evans, uh, he'd come down, he'd have his slippers on by this time. <laughs> and he'd walk down, you know, and sit next to me. And it, I say it became a tradition. I always brought a cigar for him. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah. And uh, we nothing would be said for about 10 minutes, quarter of an hour, apart from when he first sat down. I said, I said you should call him Bob. <laughs> I never told him calling him Bob. So I said, hey, boss, cigar. Uh, thank you. And after 10 minutes, he'd say, um, well, what do you think? I'm not tell him what I thought. Yeah. Uh, how I conveyed what I was watching to the Radio City audience. And it just became a, uh, a, a, say, a tradition. Um, I'll tell you what, uh, we were coming back. It was Kenny Dalglish's debut at Middlesbrough. And so this was August 77. Uh, not long after, you know, I went to Granada in the January 78. But we were coming back from, from Middlesbrough. And <clears throat> I was filing a piece, and it was late at Ayrson Park, as it was then. Uh, and I was late, and everyone was saying, Come on, let's go, let's go. And Bob Pace actually said, uh, No, no, wait for Elton. I thought, oh, You know, that is something else. Completely, and yeah. I was only like five minutes late, but, you know, but it, no, we can't go without him. Kind of. It's a great gesture. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and on the way back from Middlesbrough and the coach, Bob sat next to me. He said, uh, Ron Greenwood was there. And he came to see me afterwards. And he said, um, I want to pick the entire Liverpool team, the English, obviously, um, for the England game. I think it was against Switzerland, but I wouldn't swear to that. So don't anybody, you know, stop saying I'm an idiot. I think it was against Switzerland. But he, he was going to pick me and all the Liverpool players who were English, apart from Jimmy Case, believe it or not. Um, and I said, what, you mean Cali? 
the last time Ian Callaghan was with an England team was in the 66 World Cup, where he was part of the squad, actually played in, I think, the first game or the second. Um, and he said, yeah. I'm thinking, what a story this is. Mm. I said, can I, can, I, uh, can I do it? Can I put it out on the radio? And he said, yeah, I don't see it, but I'll, I'll have to check with Ron first. I said, mm. fine. I said, I'll come round on Monday. This is a Saturday. I said, I'll, I'll come see you Monday if that's all right and, and do the interview about it. So <coughs> the Sunday papers and the Monday papers, I, I'm, this has got to come out. It didn't. Didn't get any, No one knew. I was the only journalist, whether it be the written the, the written uh, stuff or, or, or radio or television. I was the only one who knew what, what Ron Green was, was going to announce later that week. And so I turned up on the Monday. And he goes, hey, what are you doing? Why are you here today? I said, well, you know, we arranged that I could interview you about Ron Green picking, you know, basically Liverpool team to play for England. And he went, oh, I forgot to ask Ron. Ah, oh, it'll be all right. So I did it. Did the interview. Okay. <clears throat> and I, it went out on, it led the news on Radio City. I mean, there could have been a stabbing in, in you know, Bootle or whatever. This led the news all day on Radio City with different clips of Bob, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, this was then all picked up by the papers. Yeah. And the, I think it was the Express, with the big banner headline on the back page, Ron Cops the lot. <laughs> that was my story. Also, on the same trip, this was before he told me about Ron Greenwood. Uh, when he said, Well, what do you think then? I said, Great win for you. Kenny scoring 1 0, I think it was. Um, so, a good win. I said, No, I like that sooner, fella. He played for, for Middlesbrough. And he said, Yeah, yeah, we're in for him. We'll, we'll get him. And that was the other story. Yeah. I had to check it with him because it was it was it was like off the record these conversations. Sure. So I mean, I, I could have had you know, I could have created like two back page had two back page headlines on the same day. Yeah. But I never, I never, because the soonest thing was you know a bit of a covert operation to, to get him to sign and go to Middlesbrough offered him so much. You know, so it was a bit hush hush. So so I never broke it. I, I, I and, and and he appreciated that. He knew that I could have somehow got that out. Liverpool are shortly to sign Graham Sooners from Middlesbrough. And uh, I didn't didn't run it. Yeah. Well he did. That would have given him a lot of trust in you as well and a lot of respect. The trust was there anyway, but yeah. it, I suppose you're right. You you are right. It kind of underlined the trust that we yeah. had. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you touched on it there. You said then shortly after, of course, you went to Granada to work yeah. for Granada TV. January How did that come about? Well, the... the um, <clears throat> I suppose it'd be around about December time, the... Um, the head of sport, who turned out to be my mentor in chief, um, 
what I did achieve, I wouldn't have done without Bulldog Paddy. Okay. Son of the, um, the the legendary inside forward for, for Derby Man City, Peter Doherty. Um, the hardest man I've ever, ever met in my life. Ever. Right. Without, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, absolutely ruthless. But if you were his man, he, he would protect you and watch your back. He was a wonderful boss to have in that respect. And also, he was so innovative. I mean, with the technology that they have in, 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 in soccer now, football now, he would come up with something that, that we haven't seen yet. Mm. He would come up with some way in, in, in the coverage that, that would be unique. He was that kind of guy. Anyway, he rang me and said, uh, do you want to come and join me? Granada. I'm building a team. They already had Gerald Sinstad as, as the main presenter and commentator. We said, I'm trying to build a team. So I assumed that straight away that he, he I mean, the reason he rang me, obviously, he'd heard my commentaries for Radio City. And he thought, well, this guy's not bad. Um, you know, I'll get him on board. He'll have done background checks as well about my lifestyle, whether I was on drugs and alcoholic. All right, he was that thorough, was he? Oh, he, he'd, he'd, he'd have done that. He, he didn't take on people that um, he hadn't checked out. Uh, so, he, so I said, yeah, um, I would. And Radio City were fantastic. I like to think I was good for them, but they were also yeah. very, very good to me. Um, and I went to see David Maker, the guy that I hired, the guy I spoke to outside Radio Merseyside four years before and told him, look, I can't turn this down, David. So take a month, you know, I'll give you a month's notice. And um, it was less than a month um, because they got Clive Tilsley. In fact, I appointed Clive Tilsley before yeah, I left right. Radio City. I knew he worked for um, City as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I joined Granada, uh, I think it was January the 6th, 1978. Um, and my, my, my son, my eldest child, had just been, just been born. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, was, it was a really, it was a talk about a transitional period of your life. <laughs> that was it. Because, I mean, if someone had said to me in the first six months at Granada, uh, right, let's go back to the way it was. You go straight back to what you were doing at Radio City. Would, would, you, would you have done that? Hypothetically, obviously, but would you? I would have jumped at it. Yeah, I would have jumped at it because I never saw a microphone or a camera. I was doing the legwork um, in Granada Sport. Uh, oh, and I found it tough. Of course, yeah, a big transition then from, like, say, radio. Then all of a sudden, everybody can see you. You're on TV. Well, yeah, that's the point. I wasn't on TV, but. I don't know, maybe, well, it was less than a year, but six, six, maybe nine months before um, I actually made my debut, which was on Granada Reports. Right. And I was, um, I mean, and that was a proper regional news roundup program in those mm -hmm. days in the Northwest. I mean, I could tell you that the, the presenters I joined on my, my debut in the studio 
to give out the day sports news. The other presenters were Bob Greaves, Patty Caldwell, David Jones, Bob Smithies, and the one and only Tony Wilson. Right, okay. And yeah. it was Tony Wilson who actually introduced me. And he went so far over the top. He said, well, we've got a new sports reporter with us uh, now. And uh, we tried to get Cesar Luis Minotti, you know. We tried to get those. And he, he all the people they said they tried to get, he said, but we ended up with Elton Welsby. Over to you. And I, I've always been an ad-libber. I've never, never used autocue. And I, I was like, I was like this, you know, I can't remember. And I looked up and the first things I ever said to the camera was, I'd just like to say that Tony Wilson um, prepared that gag at my expense during the two and a half hours he spent in makeup to prepare for the show. <laughs> and Wilson just howled. Yeah. I could hear it from the well, people at home could have he laughed so loud. You know, that I'm sure people at home must have heard it as well. Bob Greaves was a legend in the Northwest, Bob Greaves. He was laughing as well. And it was like, look awesome. you've arrived. Yeah. You've cracked it in five seconds, you know. That's what were those days like then? That really did happen. What were those days like, Elton, at Granada then? Was it a, a good time? Did you enjoy that period of oh, time? Yeah. Once, once, once I've made the breakthrough from being the dog's body and, you know, and, and getting people to see, uh, to being on screen and then reporting, um, oh, I loved it. I loved mm. it. And then, of course, I, I became... Um, presenter, the main presenter of Kickoff. I co-presented yeah. for a little while with Gerald, Gerald Sinstad. Um, but then I, I went solo. And of course, yeah. Jerry left. I think I, I, I never did ask Paul why he decided Jerry's time was up. Not only as a presenter, but as a commentator. Because yeah. then we got Martin Tyler in. That's right, yeah, I remember that. Um, so, so it, it, I mean, Gerald Sinsad was the face and the voice of Granada Sport. Granada yeah. And um, all of a sudden he was gone, you know? Yeah. Do you think he just was considered too old or something? Or, I mean, he wasn't, but do you think... I, no, he, no, he certainly wasn't. And don't go on about ageism because I'm perfectly <laughs> capable of doing what I, you know, what I used to do. I could do it now. I, yeah. I, I just look a bit different. I've lost hair, things like that. Um, no, I don't think it was with Jesus. I, I think Paul was so proactive in everything he did. This is Paul Doherty. Uh, so he thought to take it, to take things forward and to freshen it all up, you know, we need, we need new people. Right. I, I never asked him. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing you ask for. So he just say, none of your fucking business. <laughs> well, the thing is, I mean, Gerald Sinstad proved for years on the BBC how good he was for a long, long time. Jerry was great. Yeah. I mean, the ideal commentator for an FA Cup tie involving a team of part-timers against 
you know, Man United, Man City is it was now, you know, because he'd, he'd find out what the work schedule of all these part-time footballers were. They were builders, you know, window cleaners, milkmen. Yeah. And he'd work, he'd work it all into his commentary. Um, but no, Jerry went on for, you know, he became, he commentated, uh, I think it was Southern, Southern TV uh, for a while. Um, he went somewhere else with, within the, the ITV pyramid. But then he, he went back, never commentated, to the best of my knowledge, he didn't comment. He, he couldn't displace either Motson or Davis no. um, at, um, at the BBC. But like on, on <clears throat> FA Cup Day or something, when they had the, the rights to the, the FA Cup, and they used to have they'd have commentators at say six six grand. Jerry would do one of those. But a regular uh, reporter interviewer on the BBC for, for many years. He only passed away twelve months ago. So. Yeah, no, he did. Yeah, yeah. And he was he was ninety. Yeah, Jerry, ninety or ninety-one, lived in Stoke on Trent. I don't know how he ever got to Stoke on Trent. How that came up? No. But, yeah, I mean, for those who Jerry was a his first love, his main love wasn't football; it was the arts. Oh. He loved ballet, classical music. Um. That was his. That was his real passion. Because yeah, when you're talking about him, one of my memories is well, he did a lot of the voiceovers for the gold roundups as well on the BBC. So like you said, with the FA Cup, they might do a tour of the grounds That's and he'd do right. the voiceovers as well. And, back, and his back voice in those was days. unmistakable, unmistakable back, voice. Back in, back in those days, incidentally, because I used to do it for ITV. Those, mm. you know, the, when we did a live game on a Sunday. Um, then we'd have all the goals from the previous day. Yeah. And all stuck together in one. I had to do it live. <laughs> yeah. Really? That wasn't pre recorded? <laughs> well, that, that, yes. It, sorry. I, I tell you what, it was pre recorded, but in such a way that because of the, the, the technology not being what it is today, if you fluff, you had to go right back to the start and start all over again. Oh, right back to the first and match. This could be, this could be, this could be, it would it probably be about five minutes because yeah. you'd have 10 games. Yeah. You know, and, and if, if, if it was six all or whatever, you know, and you had to show all the, all the goals from, from all the games played the previous day, but you only had one crack at it. So when I said it was live, I, I don't mean. But it was it was like being live. Yeah, yeah sure. Because you had, you had so much time to do it, and if you kept fluffing halfway through, or even worse, just before the end. That's goal. You know, <laughs> you couldn't sort of pick up where you left off. No. Which obviously you can do today, or you could do um, later on in the early nineties. Uh, but fans fans will never understand what how big that was. For us to be able to see every goal from every game that that day before, that was massive for fans to be able to see that half time yeah. during the live match. Oh, and sure. as you said, you're showing all the goals, so you've got a live match wherever you are. 
and the games from before that was revolutionary we never had that there'd never been cameras at every ground yeah. showing the goals until itv did but, that was but massive now, but, but nowadays it's like it's an outside broadcast unit at every ground yeah <clears throat> a lot of our stuff was just single camera yeah you know um of the, of the games played on a saturday um because you had match of the day and they would have say three three games covered by an outside broadcast unit and then single cameras on on the others um but we because we we didn't do uh, sorry it's kind of like we have there the would have been four or five regional um camera units out outside broadcast unit you know four or five cameras of the game um so some of them some of them were covered properly others were just single cameras you know one yeah. guy on the gantry doing that you know following the play one camera now right i mean how many angles do you see of a goal oh, exactly yeah how many right and yeah. each one is a different camera um and that's at one end of the pitch so you've got the same number at the other end of the pitch you've probably got three cameras up top and you've, you've got a camera covering the dugouts oh right going back to when going back to when you were then at granada as well then of course you started working more for like the itv as well didn't you because didn't you go to the world cup in 82 as well 82 yeah in spain yeah, yeah. um 86 in mexico both of those times I was connected to the Northern Ireland. Uh, right, okay. <clears throat> uh, Billy Bingham, uh, in Billy Bingham's time. And then in 88, I went to the European Championship. There was a big debate. Greg, Greg Dyke, funnily enough, didn't get his way. Um, and he ruled the roost in those days at ITB. But they, they were worried technically. Um, that we couldn't we couldn't do it from the from the ground so and i i desperately wanted to go to the world cup so i was yeah. allocated the republic of ireland and that's when i first got to know big jack charlton right okay um in 88 but by 1990 when i presented italia 90 from uh from the grounds with nico in they had a team in in studio in london nico in an you know, two or three guys with him. And I'd be live in the stadium with a guest. But they weren't sure that it was going to work. Yeah. That's how it makes them, the technicians sound like novices. They weren't. It was just things were different. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it did work. And it, it basically, more stuff was coming uh coming from the stadium you know my end the presentation was more and more of it was coming from my end uh rather than the studio in london and apparently the pundits who included rodney marsh emlyn hughes uh Greavesy never came out uh saint john came out a couple of times but all the all the pundits in london they wanted to come to, to um to italy yeah. And we were we were called the Traveling Wilburys. 
<laughs> because we, we go, oh, we went by plane, train, coach, you know, we've been touring, you know, sort of one night and then we had to be in Palermo, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. God, it was tiring. It really was. But again, adrenaline, wonderful. I mean, it didn't matter how tired you were from, from the traveling and from working the previous day. Um, somehow the adrenaline got you through. Yeah. Uh, and and when, it, was, it was actually very successful. When you started working with ITV, not just regional stuff with Granada, but moving to national TV. Yeah. How was that for you? Because you became the face, really, of... ITV yeah. football. You were the presenter, the FA Cup finals. You're the main person presenting yeah. it, etc. Yeah. Well, for, you... for, for five years, I, I was, yeah, I presented all the major, um, all, all the football games. Yeah. Um, yeah, 86 started. But I, I think it was 85 when World of Sport. Um, came to its end. That's right, 85, yeah. We have the results show. So I got introduced to a national audience, if you like, doing the results show, quarter to five till five o'clock mm. on a Saturday afternoon from London Weekend Television. And that's really was my introduction to a national audience yeah. as, as, if you like, a face of football. Um, but it wasn't long after that. And I, I like to think the results show, which was incredibly complicated in those days technically um no scripts forget that just yeah. it was a wing of the prayer uh, but i handled that i think i i say successfully obviously it was handled so competing with grandstand as well competing with final score on grandstand as well and yeah but not easy is it we 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 all those who've been watching Grandstand in the afternoon, this is what we found out there, market research, et cetera, that most households who were in watching television interested in knowing what football scores were <clears throat> throughout the country would turn over to ITV at quarter five. Oh, okay. Because our, our results service, in fairness, we had all afternoon to compile it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and this is what everyone, you know, I did market research, I don't know how they work it out. They interview 100 people, don't they, and multiply it by a million. <laughs> uh, something like that. But yeah, the results service got, got excellent ratings. Anyway, last quarter now. <laughs> and also as well, you said 85 then, of course, World of Sport. And as an Everton fan, what an incredible year night 85 was for... Everton football well, club. Yeah, well, it, it started, of course, in 84, yeah, where we were against the old enemy Liverpool. And it went to a replay, which Liverpool won at Main Road. <clears throat> Graham Sooner scoring. But that, the new, you could see then there was a nucleus of a very, very good side. Yeah. And of course, it ended up winning the FA Cup in, in 84. And by that time, it was a very, very well-oiled machine. Um, very few changes. 
were made. Uh, and we should have had the treble because we, we won the, the league, the European Cup Winners Cup. Uh, and we lost in the, the final of the FA Cup to Manchester United. Yeah, extra time with 10 men. Yeah. So, yeah. They, had, they, they had 10 men. And to this day, yeah, Kevin Moran, who was sent off for tackling Peter Reid. Peter Reid, even though at that time it was nil-nil, even at that time, you know, you would have thought, well, if Man United got a player sent off, then the, the advantage the momentum would certainly be with Everton. Of course, yeah. Even still, Peter Reid protested to that shocker of a referee, Peter Willis. Yeah, his last ever game that was as well. He was retiring afterwards, Peter Willis. That, they used to do that to referees in those days. Yeah. Uh, and he was a horrible man. Um, he was a, a brutal police officer by all accounts. I saw an interview after, recently, an old interview after the match with ITV interviewing the United players and Peter Reid. And Peter Reid, even in the interview, saying, never ascending off. Absolutely. Well, he told even, Peter Willis that on the pitch. Yeah, but just, just the class and in defeat was still still saying, it's not on, it's not right. Yeah. And being really humble and congratulating the United players and still <laughs> protesting the point that um, Kevin Moran should have not gone. Yeah. And I just thought... When that tackle came in, that tackle came in, um, it was nil-nil. Yeah, Reedy, who, who again, you know, could make, for Reedy to actually say to the referee, at nil-nil, mm. hey, that wasn't standing off. That, that yeah. was fair dues, that tackle. Yeah, completely, and, completely. You know, because on the, on the face of it, once more had been sent off, you'd have thought, well, that's it in the bag for Everton. Well, yeah, it's just for those uh, younger people listening as well, it was the days of one sub as well. Yeah. So Frank Stapleton went to centre-half, who was a striker. So, I mean, it wasn't like we've got five people to choose yeah. from to bring somebody. It wasn't like that. So, yeah, in totally and different situation. Of course, Norman Whiteside, who, uh, who scored the winner, um, you know, I, I've been... Because Norman became the youngest ever World Cup player in 1982. Yeah. Uh, with, the, with the Northern So I knew Norman very, very well because we, I was camped with Northern Ireland for a month, you know, mm -hmm. um, in 82 and 86. Um, and I got, I got to know Norman very well. Um, he was certainly the man for the big occasion, Norman Whiteside. Yeah, but Ron Atkinson always said that that wouldn't have happened. If Gordon Strachan hadn't made a run down the right, I think, I forget who the left back, uh, I, whether it was the left back, our left back was Pat Vandenhaar. Yeah. Um, or, or a midfield player who sort of thought, oh, this, this is going to go to Strachan, so we must cover Strachan, Strachan's run. Yeah. And, of course, Whiteside, I think this was re rehearsed, good on him, you know, good training round routine. And Whiteside cut inside and curled a left footer past Neville Southall. Unstoppable. It had to be unstoppable if Southall was in goal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Best in the world. And, and obviously, um, I, I don't support Everton, but one thing that I do believe is that the season after, if they had been 
in the European Cup, Elton. I'm not trying to stir up Everton fans. Oh, I honestly believe they'd have gone all the way. I honestly believe I was a young lad at the time, but I, I actually think they'd have won the European Cup if they'd have. I agree with you. Uh, but I mean, but Liverpool fans, especially, uh, I don't mean that. I'm, I'm not what you call a bitter blue because Liverpool, um, if it wasn't for Liverpool, I wouldn't be talking to you now. No. Um, have done what I did because I had four years of radio setting covering Liverpool, Bob which we've been through. Um, <clears throat> but I honestly believe we would have won the European Cup in '86, even though we were picked in the league by Liverpool and beaten in the FA Cup by Liverpool. Yeah. In the final. Now, one of the reasons was our system didn't suit Gary Lineker. Mm. Sorry, Gary Lineker didn't suit our system, I should yeah. say. It did suit Gary Lineker because he scored 30 goals that season. But it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. And I wonder if we'd have... Now, Lineker would have played. He would have played. But don't forget, we lost the title. We lost the FA Cup. I believe we were the best team in, in Europe at that, at that point. I, yeah. I genuinely do believe that. I quite understand why Howard had to say goodbye to Andy, Andy Gray, um, yeah. as he welcomed in Gary Lineker. Uh, Lineker yeah. was only with us for 12 months, though. That's right, yeah. Before he went to Barcelona. Exactly. No. The fabric of the team was not the same with Lineker in it, even though the likes of Sheeds, Trevor Stephen, you know, created so many chances for, um, you know, Gracewell, Reed. you know, created so many chances for Lineker. Um, but we were a 4-2 four, four side. Um, and I, 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 there was too much emphasis on Lineker. Yeah. Although he scored 30 goals, fantastic. I, I'm not, yeah. I mean, any team today would pay how many million? But you know, for a guaranteed thirty goals a season. But it wasn't the it wasn't it wasn't the same as eighty five no. or eighty seven. And so you think, well, why wasn't it? What was the fundamental difference in between the two title winning years? And that one fundamental difference was Gary Lineker. Yeah. And I'm not saying that against him. At no. All. Not his fault. No, of course not. There was something, and you can't. You, nobody to blame. You can't blame Howard for for signing Gary Lineker, trying like no. seven hundred fifty thousand pounds uh, in his prime. Yeah, well, he proved that, and with his goals, and afterwards he got the golden boot in Mexico afterwards as well. So, That's yeah, you right. can completely understand why they got him. And when you look yeah. at the price at the time, there were players. Had already gone four or five years ago yeah. from that for a lot more money. Oh, Ian, oh, Wally, I say, Ian Wallace and Justin Fashion and players like that had gone for yeah. far more money than Lineker came for. Yeah, yeah. But I say all, all I can say is, <clears throat> and, and people can draw their own conclusions, draw your own conclusions, folks, yeah. that we won the title in 85, we didn't win anything in 86. And we won the title in 87. Yeah. The only difference really was 
was the fact that Gary Lineker played, I think, just about every game in, in 86. Yeah. Oh, put us in front in the FA Cup final. He did, yeah. So that no one's to blame. It it's just it just wasn't right. Yeah. And that's that's the only if the eighty-five team had played in the European Cup the following season without without with Andy Gray, with two out of three up front, Gray, Sharp and Heath, we would have won the European Cup without a doubt. I, I think they would have as well. I mean, it, 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 it sounds daft like without a doubt, because it's hypothetical, isn't it? It is, yeah, and obviously something could have happened. They could have gone out in the first round to Anderlecht. You just don't know, but... You don't know. I, but, no, it, but I, so what I, I, I would say is the 1985 team was... I can't even remember who won the European Cup in 85. Oh yes, I can. Oh crikey, of course. God, yeah, you meant to see. Really, yeah, yeah, that's what that's what ruined it for us. Um, yeah, but we were the best team in Europe. We were better than Liverpool. We were better than Juventus in '85. Yeah, and they were the two who have obviously played that match. Yeah, played match at, uh, at high school. Yeah. Jumping forward to the end of the 80s then, 88, when ITV got the exclusivity, the rights to the old first division, that must have felt like a massive success for ITV to have them exclusive rights at the time. Snack not of the day it was called, wasn't it? Yeah, so you didn't have to, yeah, so you didn't have to share the with the BBC. And the BBC I, just I, I was wondering, you know, sort of what, what kind of role am I, you know? Obviously, I, I was the result service in, in full swing by then. Um, I, I used to co-host Midweek Sports Special mm. uh, with Nick um, and Brian Moore before that. Um, I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what that, you know, if, if there's going to be a role for me in this, this new venture. And I was out doing the results service <clears throat> one Saturday afternoon. John Bromley, uh, a character and a half, um, who was head of sport of London Weekend Television, called me into his office. It's, it's, a, it's a, the type of thing that you think, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done there? Oh, right, okay, yeah. Oh, oh God. He said, um, we'd like you to present, you know, well, on a four-year contract to present a live football. I don't think I fainted. I'm pretty sure I didn't faint. But I'm not sure I, I said much for, for a minute or so. I was kind of... Yeah. Of, all, of all the gin joints and all the cows and all the world, uh, it was really me. I mean, it's the job every bloke in the country would want to do. Yeah. Yeah, me. <laughs> there was no interview process then. It was just direct asking well, you. Yeah, there wasn't, no, there wasn't an issue because everyone knew because all the heads of sport from all the ITV regions used to meet yeah. once a month. Right. So this was obviously discussed. I have no doubt that Paul Doherty put my name forward. Right. You know, he's the guy. He, uh, our current crop of football presenters, he's the best. Uh, 
Um, you know, I, I sounds big-headed saying that. It's not. It, it's it's obvious if you think about it. Oh yeah, head, of course. Yeah. If if what nine, ten, whatever it was, heads of sport get together and all agree that it's me that, that should be doing it, then what they're also saying is I'm the best man for the job. Of course, yeah. There's nothing wrong with saying so, that. You know, so you know, if anyone listening, watching this, is saying, you know, well, what a big head. It's not. It's back. It's it's you know, it's, it, you don't have to be a rocket science to work it out. And I think, ironically, the first one I think featured Everton. The first game, Everton Manchester United. It was, a, if I remember rightly, the first game. I'll never forget it, although I can't remember who top was at Tottenham. And that was the first game. If it wasn't the first, it was first or second. It, it was very, right. very early on. And what happened, this was, we said the kickoff should be at whatever time, five past three. So we, we Yeah, there's an extra five minutes, yeah. Build the game up and all that sort of stuff. And the referee... Uh, again, I forget who he was. He walked. We hadn't given the teams out. Nothing. And the referee walked out to this ball, put the ball on the spot, and called the teams together. And of course, in our truck, where the director and the producer were outside the ground, I was I was on at this point, and all I could hear was an almighty row going on about you know, the referee, you know, we, we say what time they kick off, not the referee. You know, we paid for this. Yeah. Um, and Jim Rosenthal, he walked onto the, this is a full house at White Hart Lane. He walked out to the centre circle to say to the referee, oh, mate, you can't kick off now. We've only just gone on air. We haven't even said who the teams are, et cetera, et cetera. Referee paid no attention. The oh. only time we had left was the time it took Jim to get off the, from the centre circle to the sideline. The, the referee wouldn't start. So basically, I was told, forget what you were going to do. Just hand over to Brian Moore now. Yeah. So I, well, rather, you know, earlier than expected, uh, let's join our match commentator, Brian Moore. The game had started. So, first thing he had to do was, oh, well, these are the teams. And they were superimposed on the screen yeah. with the match in the background. But you couldn't see the match going on because of all the names in, in front of you. And the Belgian, Van der something or other, uh, who's played for Tottenham, scored. Oh. <laughs> we couldn't see it. So, it was an absolute baptism of fire. Yeah. It, it was awful. It made us look stupid. And I mean, I know the papers the following day said, oh, you know, football's in, in the hands of a load of idiots in ITV. You know, that kind of thing. It wasn't our fault. And sod's law, you know, that Tottenham scored after about 20 seconds while we were still showing the teams. Yeah. Did they, that, did they train? That never happened again. Yeah. 
Was it strange having just like five minutes before kickoff just to just quickly introduce the teams? Because now we see it, it's an hour long. It's far too much now. It's far too, too much, much now, but it was far too, far too little then. Yeah. We had, we didn't always have five, but we sometimes had a bit longer. Yeah. Uh, because we, we did, the, the longer we went on, we, you know, we, we'd say, you know, kickoff at eight minutes past three or you know, when we were doing a four o'clock kickoff, it'd be eight minutes past four, not not yeah. four o'clock, eight minutes past four. But that was all agreed, and it didn't make it didn't make any difference to anybody, so that was okay. So we we it was normally I would say six or seven minutes we had in terms of build up. We'd have a menu that would last forty seconds, which used to come straight off the title. Um, and then I'd say, good, you know, good afternoon, welcome to wherever you work. <laughs> Our guest today is whoever it was. But it, I, I was, I was, I tweeted this. Um, someone asked me about it, so I replied. I tweeted my reply um, about co-commentators. But we used to pick, um, select our our guest for co-commentators. Um, appropriate to the game. Yeah. You know, we didn't have, it wasn't either Gary Neville one week and Jamie Carragher the other. You know, we we really, you know, we didn't have a regular co-commentator. Yeah. I suppose if we were, we couldn't make our minds up or there wasn't a suitable candidate appropriate to the game itself, then we, we used Ron Atkinson quite a bit. And uh, and David Fleet early on. Yeah. But in the main, you know, we'd have a different, pretty much a different co-commentator for every game. Yeah. Which is not the case today. You know, no. with, which it's, you see today, even though the games are different, the, the two co-commentators, Neville and Carragher, have got their own opinions. Yeah. And it just becomes repetitive. No, I agree with you, yeah. That's true. You know, and I, and I, I ended the, the tweet that I sent. I much prefer our way. And yeah. I still I still do. And it's not because I was part of that era. It's not that at all. I think, you know, the more person, as long as they can speak, you know, coherently, um, get as many in as you can. I mean, you, you, I remember there being people like Dennis Law used to come on. Brian Clough would be on as well. You'd have all these different people, but it made it fresh because, as you said, it wasn't the same people all the time. And you didn't know who it was going to be as a viewer until you tuned in because you That's didn't right. have social media telling you beforehand. So you I'm tuned gonna... in and you'd see somebody in the studio sat with you or in the gantry or whatever it is, not the gantry, the, the little box where you'd be, and then they'd go to the gantry with Brian yeah, Moore. I tell you what, it was a little box as well. It, it, <laughs> you put your life in your hands sometimes getting up to it, you know. Yeah. Uh, whereas now it, <clears throat> it's palatial, isn't it? You know, the yeah. studios that you see at the ground. Absolutely. There's one thing they do now which I don't like, though. It's the thing on the pit. I don't like them at the side of the pitch where the players are warming up and the, they've got the presenter and the pundits on the pitch. I've just never talked to that. I don't like it. And a player will come over and shake someone's hand. I think it's just too much. I don't like that. That's something I, a bit. It, it doesn't offend me greatly, I have to say. Um, I think that the, the idea is 
it's quite clearly that these are our people today and they are right in the thick of the action. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the kind of um, the, the impression that they're, they're giving, you know. Yeah. But as long as, I, what I, I really don't like now is, and it, it's, it only happens every now and again, where they'll do it in studio in a studio in London or wherever they're based. Yeah. You know, I think I think the presentation team, um, which is what we we first encapsulated in 1990 in the World Cup, Italian 90, was to have the presentation team at the ground. Yeah. Now we didn't have a studio wherever we went in in uh, in Italy in 90. We didn't actually have a studio. We were yeah. in. We were in the middle of the crowd, basically. Yeah. Or in the in the press box, you, you know. It, it was it, it was extraordinary. I had to I had a special earpiece made, which is like a hearing aid, and yeah. it, it goes right in there and it blocks out all the sound. All you can hear is what comes through the little tube in the middle of it. And I had one of those specially made. Um, which meant I could hear there could be 70,000 people going apeshit. And I could hear the PA, the director, the producer perfectly. Yeah. Des Lynham came over for, and this is not knocking him, great presenter. Um, he came over, I think basically the BBC wanted to copy what we were doing. I think it was for the semi final um, against Germany. Anyway, Des came over and presented Match of the Day live from, from there. And he lost it. He completely lost it because he couldn't hear a word. Right. He had a normal earpiece in and he couldn't hear what was going on. And, of course, the, the noise inside the stadium in 19... Wherever we went in 19... It seemed to reverberate. It was like Goodison Park on a Wednesday night, you know. It was the the noise was was horrendous, and I met there's the the we were staying at the Hilton Hotel in Rome, and saw him after the match, much late, you know, once once we started having a few pops after the match, and he said, "How'd you get on?" You know, so I said, "Fine." I said, "I said, were you wearing a conventional earpiece?" And he said, "Yeah." He said, I couldn't hear anything. Mm -hmm. I took mine out of my pocket. I said, well, if you're doing it again, get one of those. <laughs> did it did it great with you a little bit that people would compare so much the BBC and ITV's coverage, etc.? Did that annoy you a lot, the comparisons? Or did you not no, care I, about I, I mean, I... I, um, I mean, if we were going head-to-head, -head, the BBC always got the bigger ratings. Yeah, the adverts. Yeah, they didn't have any. Um, but I, I, I know a lot of people uh, might watch the BBC at my expense, but then put ITV on for the the commentary because they like Brian Moore so much. Yeah, Brian Moore was very very popular. In fact, I would say I think a better commentator than um, than Martin Davis. Uh, that that's nothing against those two at all. But I, I think Mora was the best. His voice was was far superior, as was the voice of Hugh Johns. Mm. 
far superior to anybody else. Yeah. And so, then, of course, after, after well, that... Can, sorry, you've just, just reminded no, me of something. Don't you worry. Radio City, going back to Radio City, 1976, the um, UEFA Cup final. Uh, home and away, Bruges. And I've got the scores at home anyway. So Liverpool go to Bruges. And my co commentator for the entire 90 minutes was Bill Shankly. Wow. Yeah, quite. I had him all day, but that's another story. I looked after him all day, and then we did the match at night. I do not know one Liverpool fan, and obviously I still live on, on Merseyside. Uh, I don't know one Liverpool fan at that time, uh, 1976. They watch it on the television, but the only sound they had on was Radio City. Right, yeah. I don't think anybody listened to Radio Radio Merseyside, Five Live, and it was also on BBC television, Barry Davis commentating. People just wanted to hear Shankly. Of course. Completely. Who when you who were some of your favorites that obviously you were lucky enough to have that relationship with Bob Paisley? You worked with Shankly there. When you were working with TV, you've already talked about Jack Charlton. Who were some of the, of the favourites that you used to work with, the ex-pros or ex-managers, or current, as there were some of them at the time? Right, OK. Well, I'll give my, my favourite was uh, the guy I used to enjoy spending time with, <clears throat> which we did, for example, in the, the European Championship in Sweden in 92. We virtually lived together. But we, we get hotel rooms with, you know, adjoining rooms. That was Jack Charlton. Right, OK. We did stage work. We we did after dinners together, and we we got to know each other very very well. Yeah. Um, Dennis Law, the lawman, the king. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked on kickoff for two seasons. That's the Friday night program, Granada yeah. area, previewing the weekend football. Dennis, John Bond was another who did that job. Who fabulous guy. I really enjoyed Bondi's company. Um, Lou Macari was another one I remember. We just gone on. We we gelled, you know, yeah. when we when we were on TV together. And I could ask Louis anything, and he would answer honestly. And I could think now, what's a really loaded question, controversial, blah blah blah. I'd ask Lou, and he'd answer it. He wouldn't yeah. hedge or say, "Well, I don't really want to talk about." It. I really enjoyed working with Lou. Um, <clears throat> but I suppose that the, the one that... <laughs> a lasting impression of, uh, was was Brian Clark. Of course. Because he was an absolute... He was a joy to work with if you had guts. If you yeah. didn't have guts, you'd, you'd have crapped yourself. Because you never, ever knew what he was going to be like. You never knew. When, apart from it, and I say this with respect, he had a problem, he owned it, everyone knew that, that he had a drink, a serious drink problem. Okay. Um, and you, so, first of all, you never knew whether he was going to be drunk or sober. Never right. knew. Did a game at Derby, 
Derby against Spurs. Um, studio guest Brian Clough. About an hour beforehand, uh, my, uh, the, the executive producer of the series, Trevor East, got a phone call from Cluffy's mate. I think he was a solicitor, but he used to drive him around. Oh, Brian's not too well. Uh, he won't be making it. This was an hour before kickoff. Now, I don't know exactly what Trevor said to him, but it was along the lines of, you better get him here or the entire world will know that he did not turn up because he was pissed. Right. And <clears throat> sure enough, quarter of an hour before the match started, Brian Clough started. Brian Clough arrived. So we sat in the studio in the baseball ground next to each other. And he, he was drunk. Hit it well, in, in a sense. And he goes, hey, you make me feel so young. I said, oh, thanks, Brian. Now, I'm making notes as to what I'm going to say when, when we go on air. We're only talking five minutes now before yeah. we actually go on air. And we had a, quite a bit of time because it was fluffy. You know, we, we thought we'll have a bit longer. Well, we didn't know we were going to get a fluffy that was half cut. And so, and he said, you make me feel so young. You make me feel like spring has sprung. <laughs> and every time I feel, come on, join in. So we're now two minutes to go in on air and we're going, da -da 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 -da. don't know the word. <laughs> and I think like spring is every time I feel I'm such a happy individual. Ten, nine, eight, seven. <laughs> titles. Good afternoon, everyone, from the baseball ground. It's Derby against Spurs today. Should be a cracking game. And we've got a great guest for you. In fact, he is the world, according to him, number one granddad. <laughs> and the camera cut to this badge on his <laughs> number one grand, and then panned up to reveal him. And he was typical Cluffy. Uh, and I said, you know, my first should be good today, right? Hey, you couldn't have picked a better game. <laughs> he said, you've got Derby County, Tottenham Hotspur, a great crowd, and me. <laughs> well, it, we're delighted you're here, Brian. You know, and then it, it went on, and he he, he started saying, um, "I was speaking. I was speaking to your colleague Brian Moore this week, who's, in my opinion, the best. No offense to you, young man. I said it's on paper, and blah blah blah. And then eventually, it was right. And now over to the commentators. Um, Ron Atkinson and Alan Parry. Oh, I said, that's right. I said, and, and anyway, uh, you know, Brian Moore isn't with us today. Our commentator is Alan Parry. Great line. Alan Parry head. Yes, thank you, Elton. And uh, good afternoon to you as well, Brian. I'm a big fan of yours also. Ah, <laughs> that, was, that was brilliant. Parry, uh, that was 
That's a scouser. That's a scouser for you. Thinking on his feet. And also sort of, ins not insulting, but, you know, not not intimidated in any way by Brian yeah. Clough. Which, hey, a lot of people were. I imagine I was, they were, yeah. I was outside, but we did a game, at the, it was at Forest Arsenal, we were doing the city ground, and we finished everything. And Cluffy had gone into his office, and then, in, but in those days, you didn't go out to the, for a press conference. You didn't have, you know, with all the, the advertising around the back of the interviewee, uh, all the press just gathered around outside his office door. So I was stood, oh, 15 yards away, talking to Ronnie Fenton, one mm -hmm. of, one of his, his backroom team. And Cluffy came out of his office door to, to, you know, entertain the press. And he looked down, he saw me talking to Ronnie Fenton, and he went, hey, Wellesby, shit out. And Ronnie Fenton said, he liked you. He meant it. <laughs> you know, in other words, he doesn't talk to people like that unless he likes them. <laughs> and that was fluffy. I mean, I wouldn't have missed a minute the time I spent with him, which was quite a lot. Yeah. No, it's, and that's the good thing now. We're lucky to be able to look back, thanks to YouTube, yeah. and look back at these old that came up on, um, on Twitter quite recently, and I'd forgotten all about it. it. Was before an 88 Cup final. Yeah, that was that was mine. That was from me. Oh, you <laughs> sent me that. Of course you did. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, stupid. Yeah. I'd forgotten all. I'd forgotten. That, that was one of the times I've interviewed Puppy because yeah. it was down the line. We weren't sat next to each other, as you you know better than anyone. You know, he was in the hospitality, was he? Was yeah, he was in the, the celebrity bar, I think, or something yeah, like yeah. that when we were there. Yeah. And because uh, Nigel was, was getting presented with the young player of the year, was it? Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. But I'd forgotten all about that. But he, he was he was well behaved then, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah, there was some yeah. little there was a little hints of cheekiness that were possible. Oh, well, yeah, I'd, I'd settle for that. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I think he also probably realised he also couldn't let the people down. I think people also wanted that from him as and well. And also, you know, he wasn't speaking as the manager of Nottingham Forest football. No. He was speaking as the father of Nigel. Puller. Yeah, and that, that came through as well. You could see that as well. Yeah, yeah. But now, I, was, I was made up to see that because I had forgotten yeah, all of that. Oh, that's, that's good. That's good to hear. Now, of course, then things started to change with football. Um, and then the news came through that ITV wouldn't be having the rights anymore. And Sky came and changed football not not saying they changed it completely. I'm not saying in a good way or a bad way. They just changed it completely. Yeah. Which, um, did you did you think about working with Sky? Because of course Richard Keys had had done stuff for ITV, done voiceovers for goals and commentary as well as working on TV. Yeah, they, they wanted their own person to front it, uh, and I totally understood that. It, it wouldn't if if I'd have popped up, for example, on on Sky. Yeah, which I was never asked to do, by the way. So, yeah. But if I'd have popped up um, on Sky, it would have seemed just the same. Yeah. You know, as as the previous four or five years, whatever it was, with with ITV. Yeah. Um, 
So no, I understand that. And I, I went back and spent another eight years um, at Granada, just working for Granada. Yeah. Uh, and thoroughly enjoyed it because I had such a great, great boss. Yeah. But when he retired, be about 96, 97, um, his successor was a fellow called Paul McDowell, an Irish guy, um, whose claim to fame was he used to sit in for John Craven on John Craven's news round. Oh, right. Okay, I used to watch John that. Craven was was on. The guy was a, a total buffoon, and it didn't take me long to get rid of him, because the the head of um, no, I've never told this story publicly before, but it's absolutely true. The head of um, local programming at Granada, Jeff Anderson, said, "Can't you go out for some lunch one day?" I said, "Yeah, yeah um, So we we went to. Um, what's cooking at the Albert Dock in Liverpool. And he said, look, this is kind of off the record all. I'll not repeat anything you say to me, uh, but I will take it on board and react accordingly. I said, yeah, I'm fine, whatever you want. And he said, tell me about McDowell. I said, the most incompetent man I have ever worked with or for. That was it. No. Within he was working his notice, if indeed he did work his notice, within a week. Yeah. But he was a, he was a, it sounds like I've been cruel. I wasn't. He was a nasty piece of work. Okay. He deserved, he deserved what was coming to him. I mean, he, he'll get to hear of this. And he, but he, he, he knows what I thought of him. So, looking back, going back on the, your career what what's one of your most favorite moments you've ever had thinking about i know you've had so many but what some of your favorite moments being on the air or something like that you can just leave us one lasting memory i'll give you two um i'll give you three i'll give you three in chronological order 1985 european cup winners cup in rotterdam everson winning the cup beating rapid vienna I was sat on the bench, dressed up as a substitute, but with a hidden microphone. <laughs> so I, I could talk to um, John Bailey during the game. Only twice in the first half, twice in the second. Howard Kendall had agreed it all. Um, so did they have to smuggle you in as part of the squad? No, I ran out with, with you know, because <laughs> the team would go out first and then the subs would come out. Mm. Uh, tracksuits and well I just walked out with a substitute sat on the end where a microphone had been concealed underneath the bench that the sub sat on um and then on a cue from from Paul Brian Moore who was commentating with Cluffy would throw down to me I couldn't hear him so Paul used to go you're on you know yeah. this is from high up in the stand so I couldn't hear him saying you're on. So I just say, thank you, Brian. Yes, John, things are going well, John, aren't they? You know, blah, 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 that, that kind of thing. Um, and then at the end of the match, before Kevin Ratcliffe had been presented with the trophy, I had interviewed just about every player on the pitch. Um, uh, that was the first time that has ever happened. 
and mm. uh, it's it's on it's on the um, uh, you know the I think it was a video that came out, <laughs> not a CD. Uh, it was it was on the on the video, you know. People know. I said, well, "Have a look at the video if you don't believe me." Yeah. You know, you can hear me talking to John Bailey during the match, and interviewing in in record time, interviewing the players when when the game is over. Right, the next one, 1989, Liverpool nil, Arsenal two. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that game. Yeah. Well, just. Phenomenal. And that is nothing to do with me being an Evertonian. That is purely as a TV professional. That was never going to happen. That couldn't happen. All Liverpool needed to do was avoid defeat by two goals and they would be champions. Yeah. No chance. Fortress Anfield nah, couldn't possibly happen. <laughs> but it did. Yeah. It, it was the most amazing night. Absolutely. To give that also a bit more context, that was the first season of the ITV having exclusive rights as well. So what a great end to the season. You've got this, all these rights, exclusive. BBC's got FA Cup. They're showing Kettering and Bristol Rovers or something. You've got this fantastic game yeah. on a Friday night just to well, finish was, off the first season. It's, uh, there was a late kickoff yeah. as well. Um because of the amount of people still getting in. So I had a long time to speak to Sir Bobby Robson about you know, what we're about to witness, which was great. Conversely, <laughs> at the end, they had the presentation on the pitch, which was unscheduled if yeah. Arsenal had won it. Yeah. Now, it was going to be presented on the pitch to Liverpool. It's got to go to Liverpool. And then it was, well, in front of you know, 30 of that, well, a few Arsenal fans, 40,000 Liverpool fans to present the trophy to Arsenal on that night. I mean, that could cause a riot. Anyway, they did it. Mm -hmm. And Jim Rosenthal was down there interviewing Tony Adams with the trophy, etc., etc. Um, and in those days, News at 10 was sacrosanct. Yeah. It was 10 o'clock or we just cut you off. So it came to me with, I think, 10 seconds to the ad break prior to news at 10. And all I had time to say was, oh, well, I'll tell you what, Bobby, we've seen something there. You know, or so, along those lines. I've got exactly yeah, yeah. Bobby, I had 10 seconds to get out. Yeah. And so I don't... I, I'm not... I can't recall. It's so many... So long ago, and so long ago since I've seen it, since I've seen it back, I can't even remember whether Bobby even just sort of said yes. <laughs> I don't think he did. I think he sort of went, <laughs> but that's that was it. And thirdly, and I'm telling this against myself, the third one I remember, but for a strange reason, was the um, the European Championship final in Sweden in 1992 between Denmark and Germany. Denmark yeah. had no right to be there, no right to be in the final. Certainly, they, they were pulled off the beaches because of Czechoslovakia yeah. situation. Um, Yugoslavia situation, I beg, beg your pardon. It's all the same to me over there. Um, and it, it, it turned out 
to be Jürgen Klinsmann against Peter Schmeichel. Yeah, that's right. And Peter Schmeichel won. It was amazing. Um, it, it was, and um, we we finished because the, the, it seemed the entire crowd, I'm sure the Germans weren't involved, but the, the noise from the crowd singing um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life was, was somebody. And I couldn't understand Jack and Ron Atkinson were, were with me in our presentation position, which was right in the middle of all this. Not in a tucked away, tiny, warm little studio. We were we were in the middle of it, you know, you always look on the back. So the last five seconds, 10 seconds ish, round there, I, I just said, well, that's it from ITV coverage of the European Championships. Well, if you can't beat them, join them. And the three of us sang, sang us out. Oh, right, really? Yeah. And uh, that was. That was hysterical. And of course, it went down very, very well with the ITV hierarchy. They thought this was different. <laughs> and so we just sang, sang our way out. Um, but that night, uh, John Atkinson, uh, John, Ron Atkinson went out with a, a piece of fitting um, from the sun. And that left me and Jack. You know, um, we were we were celebrating, having a great, great time in the hotel bar with a lot of the crew, you know, always involved at the lads, cameraman and things like that. Uh, and I, I went to the toilet, I'm st stood there at the toilet, as you do, you know, having a wee wee. And I just heard a voice saying, are you Danish? And I turned around just to say, well, no, I'm English, actually. It was, it was a German with a fistful of coin and just went whack, bang, knocked me out totally. Wow. Yeah. I woke up uh, 10, 10 minutes later, something like that. Uh, you know, I, initially you think, what am I doing on the floor in a toilet in, 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 uh, in Sweden? It was really weird. I, I couldn't get my head around it. And then it, I remembered what, what had happened. I mean, the last thing I saw was a fist, which had coins in it. Anyway, yeah. so I went, I went back, back to Jack. I mean, I felt all right. But he said, what's happened to you? And it obviously, it was starting to get discolored. Mm. Uh, I said, oh, that's a bloody German fan. thought it was a Danish supporter. This lamp. He went, here, have a drink. Anyway, eventually we went to bed. Following morning, I got up. I felt again, I felt fine. I went to the mirror, you know, as you do, comb your hair. I mean, I was out here. Yeah. It was, I, it was a. I've, I've never seen a worse black eye watching boxing. It was. Oh. Unbelievable. Uh, okay, we were flying home that day. Uh, flew home, Manchester Airport, and my wife and, and two kids are waiting for me. I'm a daughter who will be about five. I mean, she freaked. 
know, wouldn't give oh, me a hug. Would, wouldn't she? Yeah. No, oh, she freaked. You know. So then, I mean, and then, I mean, I've told that story so many times because, you know, pe people at the time, not so much now, but at the time, what happened to you? Mm, oh, of course. In the hotel bar, I went for a pee. German fella came up. You know. You don't look. You don't look very Danish, though, do you? Really, especially not at that time either. You well, didn't, I, I really have the Danish don't, look. Don't forget, I, I, he was behind me. He yeah. couldn't see my face or my features. I was yeah. pissing. Yeah. And all yeah. I heard was, "Are you Danish?" And I, I'm sort of, "No." Bang. Right. Elton, it's been an absolute pleasure to share these stories with and hear these stories. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And one thing I've got to say, during this, there was one bit that you did that really took me back as well. When you did, in one of your stories, you threw back as if you were thrown over to Brian Moore. And it was brilliant. You actually said it in your story, like your match commentator, Brian Moore. And that really got me then because that took me back. That was out of time. Yeah, but I'm not about before in one of the other stories earlier, you mentioned it about Brian Moore as well. And oh, that yeah. really took me, that really took me back as well with the nostalgia side of it as well. Yeah. So thank you so much. Um brilliant. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much. And see see you soon. Take care. I hope so. Cheers, Gary. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye really grateful to Alton Wellsby there. Really enjoyed talking to him. So many stories, so many memories, great things he's shared throughout his career, incredible career, and of course, his, his love of Everton. So thanks very much for joining me today. Please don't forget, just click on subscribe, then you'll make sure that you don't miss out on any of the episodes. And I'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye.